as you know, uh, last week or two weeks ago, I was asked to speak uh, at the seminary, at the Master's Seminary out in California. That's John MacArthur's uh, seminary. And uh, the way that worked is uh, Creighton Ring, who uh, Creighton and Carrie were members of the church here, and they are now out at the seminary. And Creighton is the student body president, and it's his job to invite guest speakers, top-notch, top-flight <laughs> guest speakers at the seminary. Uh, they couldn't find any, so they called me, right? And um, he asked me if I would be willing to, to come out and speak. I was more than honored to do so. Now, he called me in May right after I had returned from Israel. And if you remember, I came back and I preached a message on Gideon's fleece. And when he, he asked me to speak, I said, oh, I have the perfect message. Talked to him about it, and he said, that's great. So it was saved on my computer, and uh, several months went by, and few days before I flew out there, I said, I better brush up on the sermon. Let me take a look at it. And I pulled it out and I go, what was I thinking? <laughs> this, this sermon does not fit at all what, uh, what they asked me to speak on. And uh, what I did was I, I remembered a certain part of the sermon, but um, what they wanted was for me to talk about God's will. How do you know God's will when you pray? And um, I had focused on a lot of different things in, in Gideon's life, but what I did was I rewrote the entire sermon, focusing more on the fleece incident. So um, this is going to seem kind of familiar, but it's actually a totally new sermon, and it's really, really good, important stuff that I wanted to share with you. So we're going to call it Gideon's Fleece Remix, all right? And um, let me remind you of the story of Gideon, all right? This is where the Israelites are in the land, and, uh, but, but they're not really following the Lord. So God allows various nations to come against Israel. And he has allowed the Midianites uh, to raise up against Israel. And um, God appears as an angel to Gideon, and he says, you are going to raise up an army and defeat the Midianites. And uh, he blows his trumpet, and he gathers all the troops of Israel, 32,000 troops. The only problem is the Midianites have 135,000 troops, so they're outnumbered four to one, right? So um, God says, go fight. Go fight the Midianites. And uh, Gideon's a little nervous. He says, we're kind of outnumbered. And God says, yeah. The, speaking of numbers, you have too many to win. We need to cut down the army. And he says, what I want you to do is tell the Israelites, line up, and anybody who's afraid, tell them they can go home. Now, have you ever seen movies where the general, he, he kind of he uses the man up talk, where he says, uh, yeah, if you're afraid, go home, but if you're a real man, step forward. You know, I, I coach football, seventh grade football, and I've been working with Jeff Frazier, from First Baptist, and he's this big, he used to play pro ball, okay, he got paid once, so he, he, he played pro ball, and um, when we break into groups, like into uh, running backs and receivers and quarterbacks, here's what Jeff would do, he's a lineman, he goes, uh, all right, we're going to break into, into teams, quarterbacks, backs, receivers over there, real men with me, linemen, 
And these little seventh graders, they don't know what to do. They're like, oh, I'm a real man. I'm with him, you know, little scrawny kid. So man up. So uh, Gideon says, man up. If you're afraid, go home. 22,000 say, see ya, and they leave. So there's 10,000 guys left. God says, that's a start, but we have too many. We need to weed out more people. And he takes them down to the brook. And this is the actual brook that Gideon brought the 10,000 men to. Okay, we, we actually saw the water. And Elizabeth drank from the water. Right? And that's a girl named Amy and Elizabeth. They're drinking Gideon's water there. And uh, God comes up with this kind of random plan. He says, uh, watch how they drink. Either they will cup the water to their mouth or they will stick their head in the water like a dog. Separate the lappers from the cuppers. Right? Only 300 cuppers were there. He said, those are the guys I'm going to use to defeat the Midianites. And with only 300 men, uh, Israel wins. Right? A, a miracle. Now, that's the end of the story. What I want to focus on is the beginning of the story and the whole fleece incident. Right? Now, here's how the story begins. An angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says, You mighty warrior, you are going to gather an army and defeat the Midianites. And um, Gideon says, How's that going to work? And the angel says, I will be with you. All right? You have the secret weapon, me. All right? The secret weapon is not how you lap water. The secret weapon is God promised to be with him. All right? So... Uh, so Gideon says, how do I know it's really you? And the angel of the Lord says, well, go slay a lamb and prepare some lamb chops for me. So Gideon brings the lamb chops and puts them on a rock. And then the angel says, pour the broth over it to, to, to show that they're really moist. Right? You who cook turkeys, cook it in its gravy, cook it in its, you know. And so he, he pours the broth over it. And then the angel of the Lord takes his staff touches the lamb chops, and poof, they disappear in a puff of smoke. And then, actually fire consumes them, and then the angel himself disappears. And Gideon goes, okay, it's a good one. I believe it's you, Lord. Okay, so the disappearing pork chop, the disappearing angel, Gideon believes that it's really him. So Gideon has been given a command, defeat the Midianites. He's been given a promise, I'll go with you. And he's been given a sign, the disappearing angel trick, right? So he has everything he needs to go defeat the, the Midianites. But he starts to waver, and that's where the, the whole fleece thing comes in that we're going to take a look at. Then Gideon said to God, now, I want you to remember two words. First word is the word if. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, he already has been given the promise yet he's questioning whether God's going to really do it. So remember that word, if, and he even says, as you have said, so he knows God has made the promise. If you're really going to do it, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I should know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. There's the promise again. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with Water. Now, here's the problem with laying out a fleece. You never know whether it was really God who answered 
or it was just a coincidence. I remember back in May when I first was studying this. Um, we have a trampoline in our backyard. The kids are always having neighbors over and bouncing, and somebody's always leaving a pair of shoes or socks laying around. I looked outside. There was a pair of socks on the porch, on the, uh, on the deck. It had rained that night, but everything was dry in the morning. I went out. The deck was dry. The grass was dry. Socks were wet. Divine miracle or normal phenomenon with socks, right? Gideon asks for a wet fleece. He gets a wet fleece, and then he goes, so what? That happens all the time. That's the problem with laying out fleeces. But then he says, let's do a reversal thing here. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me. Now, the second word I want you to remember, first word is the word if. And then the second word is the word test. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. He admits he's testing God here. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. So he gets a double fleece miracle. He goes on and defeats the Midianites. Now, here's the question. You know, probably the number one thing Christians pray for is to know God's will. Right? Lord, I need to make a decision about a job, about the economy, about my kids, about my marriage, about this, about that. God, show me your will. So here's the question. Are we supposed to lay out a fleece to find out God's will? Should we say, God, if you want me to do A, then you do B to show me your will? Now, from my survey of talking with Christians in the Christian world, most Christians would say, yes, Gideon did it, God answered, therefore we should do it. This is our, this is our signal that it's okay to lay out a fleece. That's how God answers the question, what is your will for me. I'm going to say the answer is no. We are not to follow Gideon's fleece-laying example. I would say the, the Christian world, though, is getting more and more subjective. What do I mean by that? There's the objective word of God, God's sure, infallible, inerrant, inspired word, and then there's feelings, promptings, leadings, circumstances. From what I'm seeing, more and more Christians are leaning to the subjective as opposed to leaning on the objective. In other words, most of the Christian world I'm experiencing is saying, yeah, let's lay out a fleece. Let's follow the subjective. That's how God leads. So here's what I want to do. I want to compare this to six other verses in Scripture and, and ask the question, how does Scripture help us interpret Scripture? This is not just uh, hopefully answering the question, should I lay out a, uh, a fleece? This is also a lesson in how to do Bible study, how to do Bible interpretation. All right? So six principles to help us figure this out. Principle number one is this. Description is not prescription. All right, description is not prescription. What do I mean by that? 
Just because the Bible describes a historical event does not necessarily mean it is prescribing that you should follow that event. Description is not necessarily prescription. All right? Description is not prescription. A great example that I like to use is the story in the New Testament of Philip the Evangelist. He uh, runs up alongside a, uh, a chariot, and there's a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch, who is in uh, the chariot, and he leads him, Philip leads him to the Lord. He shares the scroll of Isaiah with him, and the Ethiopian eunuch believes in Jesus. They stop, and there's a lake. And uh, the eunuch says, Philip, why shouldn't I be baptized? question I get most of the time is, why should I be baptized? This guy who's newly saved says, why shouldn't I be baptized? So Philip goes down in the water and baptizes him. Now, what happens right after he baptizes him? You remember? Here's what happens. And when they came up out of the water, see, he immersed him, you Baptists, immersion, right? Didn't sprinkle. Fully grown believer, not baby. Okay. Um, And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, the evangelist, disappeared. He disappeared. Now, what if somebody came along and said, well, we're starting a new church, a new denomination, the church of the disappearing evangelist? Because the Bible teaches that true, proper baptism involves baptizing in a lake, and then the the baptizer must disappear. There it is, right in the Bible. We would go, that's crazy. That's just a one-time event. You shouldn't make that normative for all time. Why do we do that with the police, though? Just because the Bible describes it doesn't mean it prescribes it. Description is not necessarily prescription. It may be a unique one-time historical event. Now, so that's principle number one. Description is not necessarily prescription. Now, somebody may say, but wait a minute. We know God approves of laying out fleeces because if God didn't approve, he wouldn't have have answered Gideon's prayer. He wouldn't have uh, made the fleece wet or dry. In other words, somebody may say God approves of this because it worked. If it worked, it must have God's approval. Point number two, accommodation is not approval. All right, Accommodation is not approval. What do you mean? Just because somebody says, Lord, I'm laying out this fleece and God accommodates himself and works through that situation does not mean that God approves of that for all time. Classic example, King Saul is going to go to war against the Philistines. The uh, prophet Samuel is dead. Every time Saul has gone to war before, he has consulted with the prophet Samuel to get a word from the Lord. Samuel is dead. So now Saul needs to hear a word from Samuel. So what does he do? He goes to a witch. He goes to a medium. And he says to the witch, I need to talk to Samuel. Can you call him up? Ring his number in the, from the, the realm of the dead. And the witch hooks up Samuel and Saul. Now, some people say, 
well, she didn't really contact him. It was a demon. It was uh, uh, some kind of a phenomenon. Here's what the text says. Then Samuel said to Saul. The, the text says Samuel communicated with Saul. Right? Now, does that mean now that God approves of going to mediums for you to get advice? People, please say no. Some of you are like, I've never thought of that before. No. Clearly, this is forbidden. Going to mediums is forbidden, right? In fact, Saul knew this. He outlawed all mediums, yet he goes to the medium anyways. Now, can we conclude, because in this event it worked, therefore God must approve of witches and mediums? No. But sometimes God accommodates himself to our request. In Saul's case, he accommodated himself to his request to condemn him. You know what Samuel told him? Samuel uh, said to Saul, not only are you going to lose, but you're going to be with me here in the realm of the dead tomorrow. In Gideon's case, God accommodated himself to Gideon's request to encourage him. Yes, you're going to win. But accommodation is not approval. Let me give you another example. We've got Christmas coming up. The wise men come to visit Jesus. Now, some of the translations say wise men, some say kings. The Greek says the magi, magicians, occultic, stargazing magicians. Look at the stars and find their way to baby Jesus. Therefore, it's okay to become astrologers and read the stars, right? Wrong. But God accommodated himself to their occultic practices, not to endorse it, but so they would get out of that and find Jesus. Accommodation is not necessarily approval. Let me give you a third principle. God sets the terms, not us. Here we've got Gideon saying, hey God, if you want me to do A, then you jump through hoop B. Be careful about telling God the terms upon which he must act. Right? I told you to remember the word if and the word test, right? Jesus is being tempted in the desert. And then Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Highest point of the temple. Hundreds of feet between him and the ground. And Satan says, if, remember that word if? If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written. Now you go, what's, what's this all about? If you are the Son of God. Maybe he was testing Jesus' humanity in, in Christ's humanity, making his humanity question his own identity. Maybe that's what was going on. Or maybe he was saying, if you're the Son of God, here's a great way to prove it to the crowd below. Jump, and the angels will catch you. Or maybe Satan was saying, if you really are the Son of God and God your Father really loves you, why don't you test his love for you? We don't know exactly what the test was, but he said, here, if you're the Son of God, have God prove it. Jump. In fact, he even has a verse, Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You even have a verse. Go ahead, Jesus, jump. Does Jesus jump? Jesus said to him, 
Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Gideon says, if you want me to do A, then I give you a test, do B. Satan says, if you really are the Son of God, then jump. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't test God. I think here we have a clear rebuttal of the fleece, of telling God, if you want me to do A, you jump through hoop B. In fact, how is laying out a fleece not testing God? How is it not setting the terms? How is it not making God answer to our, uh, our rules? In fact, why not, if fleeces are okay, why not just go get a Ouija board? And say, Lord, if you want me to do A, move in this direction. If you want me to do B, move in this direction. How is a fleece any different than a Ouija board? Now, um, many fleece readers are what I call after-the-fact fleece readers. They pray, God, please reveal your will. Amen. Have you ever done that? Lord, show me this. Show me that. How do you know how he's going to answer? What are you looking for next? Most people look for circumstances. Right? We try to read circumstances. Let's read God's will in the circumstances. Now, here's something dangerous. Interpreting circumstances can be deadly. Because we have an incredible ability to read into circumstances whatever we want the answer to be. Greatest example of this, again, Saul, crazy King Saul, who's possessed by a demon, is trying to kill David. David's hiding in a cave. Saul, who has 3,000 bodyguards protecting him, uh, decides that he needs to take a break. And here's the incident, 1 Samuel 24. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went inside to relieve himself. And if you remember, our tour guide said relieve himself doesn't mean go to the bathroom. It means take a nap. So whatever. (laughs) Whatever he's doing, you know. He is now by himself away from his 3,000 bodyguards. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. You talk about circumstances. This guy's trying to kill you, and you're hiding for your life, and the very guy who's trying to kill you is by himself now, either sleeping or in another awkward position. Right? And the men of David said to him, now look at what what David's men say, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Apparently, God had given David a promise that God would deliver his enemy into his own hands, and and David would be able to slay him. And the men are saying, Hello, could there be any clearer circumstances that this is your opportunity to kill Saul? So, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, 
David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David is ready to kill him. Instead, he cuts off the corner, and then he feels bad that he ruined his robe. That was a pretty expensive robe he got at Walmart, so he didn't want to ruin it. So he's like, oh, I feel bad. And then he realizes, I almost killed the Lord's anointed. And there's a higher principle. You don't mess with the the king of Israel, right? So, uh, So David wakes up from trying to read circumstances, some pretty amazing circumstances, and he says, no, what is the revealed word of God? He catches himself from trying to read into circumstances, even though there's some pretty amazing circumstances. How do you know that the circumstances you're reading are truly from God? Maybe Satan is setting you up. Or, or maybe God is testing your faithfulness to the Word of God. If there, is a, if there is a number one danger that I see in Christians today who are given to the subjective, it's saying this must be God's will because the circumstances are so clear. What about the Bible? What about His revealed will? I won't tell you my story about the birds again. You know my story real quickly. All right, I will. Uh, Driving down the road, an owl flies out of the side of the road, and he flaps his wings and looks at me through the windshield, eye to eye, an eagle, and then he flies away. You know what I think God was trying to say? Absolutely nothing. He doesn't speak through, through owls, okay? But I know a lot of Christians who would go, whoa, God spoke to me through an, through an owl. No, he didn't. Go get your Ouija board. Um, I asked the kids the other day, do you have a, any incident that you could share that, that might help me illustrate this? Caleb's got a friend he's been witnessing to about hell. He needs Jesus or you're going to go to hell. Right? He, he uses the direct approach. Right? This friend comes up to him says, you'll never believe what happened. I went into my room and my alarm clock, my digital alarm clock, fell off my nightstand and it was upside down and the time was 11.34 and upside down 11.34 spells H-E-L-L. You know what I think God was trying to say? Absolutely nothing. I don't think he speaks through alarm clocks. Once I was studying uh, for a message on spiritual warfare. Put on the armor. Satan's out to get you. There's There's a whole billion demons out to get you. You know that? How do you you withstand? So I'm studying all this stuff. And I was done studying. Put all the books back. Left. And I, I, I can't remember. I, I want to say that I came back late that night for something. I turned on the light in my office. This was in Wisconsin. There in the middle of the floor was a book that had come off the shelf on spiritual warfare. I, I literally got one of those creepy things. like. Uh, <laughs> you know what I think God was trying to say? 
absolutely nothing. You know, I know a lot of Christians who would read a whole thing into that. Oh, God, the demons are out to get me. Actually, I think what happened was I was studying those books, and my bookshelf was just shelves without ends on them, and that section got moved, and when I left, they kind of adjusted, and one fell off the shelf. Or it was a demon. I don't know. It was one or the other. So what? So what? We've got to be careful about reading into circumstances. Right? Let me give you another one. Feeling at peace can be deceiving. All right? Feeling at peace can be deceiving. You know, um, you ever talk to somebody who's contemplating a divorce? And you try to talk to, to them about what the Bible says about divorce. And they say, but God has given me such a peace. I know that this is okay because God has given me a peace. So what? What do your emotions have to do with God's will? Well, he speaks to me through giving me a peace. Let me give you an example of where it was clearly God's will for something to happen, but there was no peace. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here we have this mystery of of the Son of God who is in perfect tune with the Father's will. Yet in his humanity, he's I, I don't want to endure your wrath. And he's agonizing. And he says, uh, take this away. Take, I don't, if it's at all possible, take this away, but not my will. Thy will be done. And then a perfect peace came over Jesus. Right? No. Verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in, not in peace, In agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. No peace, but it was clearly God's will to go through with this. Where do we get this idea that it must be God's will if I feel a peace about it? Sometimes it's God's will when we don't feel a peace about it. I wonder, are some of us waking up and realizing we've been, we've been buying into the subjective far too much? Right? Now, am I saying God never uses subjective means or circumstances or providence to lead us and guide us? No, I'm not saying that. In fact, let me give you a clear example of where he does use the subjective to lead us. In 1 Timothy 3, he talks about elders. How do you know? How do you know who should be an elder? Paul says the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, and some translations say, if anyone desires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
One way he leads people into the ministry is by giving them an internal prompting and a desire to serve in that way. There's clearly an example of God using the subjective. Now, does this mean everybody who feels like they should be in the ministry or a pastor or an elder should be one? No. Paul goes on to give Timothy 15 objective criteria that the rest of the church is to use to evaluate this guy's call to ministry. I think that's a great lesson. One subjective leading, you got 15 objective criteria upon which to evaluate it. Right? The, the issue here is not that God never uses the subjective. It's that the subjective is always to be subjected to the objective, not the other way around. And that leads us to the final point. Objective revelation must trump the subjective. What do I mean by objective revelation? The Word of God. The Word of God always needs to take precedent and priority over the subjective. God may use circumstances. God may use leadings. God may use promptings. But because there's so much room... For our wills to get into the mix, we have to submit the subjective to the objective. The objective is our final authority. You do believe in sola scriptura, don't you? Sola scriptura means scripture alone is our final authority. What are you doing putting your feelings on the same level as the final authority? You don't believe in sola scriptura if you believe that there's ongoing uh, revelation. It's not your final authority if it's not your final authority. Um, I am so grateful that as a brand new believer, I received solid teaching on this. I got saved in 1982, walked into a church. They had a church uh, bookstore. In the bookstore, they had a shelf of sermon tapes. There was one called How to Know the Will of God by some guy named John MacArthur. Popped that thing in uh, the radio. I was amazed. First of all, I'd never heard a sermon with, by somebody who really knew the Bible. Right? This guy knew the Bible. And here, here's the thesis of the sermon. Quit wasting your time seeking after God's secret will. God does have a secret will. It's called his sovereign will. Everything is planned out by God. Now, that throws some of you off, but as you study your Bible, you're going to find out God is sovereign over everything. The world is not randomly spinning out of control, but God has it under perfect control. Some of the things, though, he has revealed, other things he hasn't revealed. What are you doing wasting your time seeking after his secret, unrevealed will? If he wanted to reveal it to you, he would. So his, his message was this. Spend your time seeking after his revealed will in the objective word of God. And then he went on to say, what's his revealed will? And he gave five things. Five things that all begin with the letter S. That you be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, and suffering. And he went through scripture on each of those. And uh, by the way, if you wonder, why, Pastor, why do you you take the time to put things in the to outline form with the letters that, that begin with the same letter. first sermon I heard 
had five points that all begin with the same letter, and it has stuck. Right? I mean, I, well, I won't get into this. All right. Um, then MacArthur said this. Spend your time studying his revealed will. Live with all your heart his revealed will. And then look at Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? Now, here's how MacArthur interpreted it. Delight yourself in the Lord. Seek after his revealed will. Live by his revealed will. And he will give you the desires of your heart. He interpreted it to mean he will actually place those desires in your heart. Not that he will give you anything your heart desires, but he will actually give you holy desires. So, so it's okay to follow your desires. Others say, no, it's, it's, it, it means that he will give you what your heart desires. But either way, if your heart is sold out on obeying God, you have a, a heart that is progressively being sanctified by God and your desires are going to be holy. But the point is you have some freedom there. Don't agonize over the green socks or the red socks. Even with who you're going to marry. What does his revealed word word say? Don't you dare marry an unbeliever. Find a believer who is sold out to the Lord. And they need to have the following qualities. And then once you've got that narrowed down, there's some other criteria. And finally, you've you've got perfect candidate A and B. Who should I marry? The one you want. Marry the one you want. Follow God's... And then there's some freedom. Okay? Now, you say, but what about those cases where it's just, I really need wisdom. I, I really need to know God's wisdom. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You go, aha! That verse foils everything you've been saying, Pastor. There you don't have wisdom, you seek wisdom, and God zaps you with wisdom right there. He gives you divine revelation wisdom. Why do we assume that the wisdom that God gives is brand new, fresh, hot off the press revelation? In fact, something interesting, the wisdom, I look at the word wisdom, did a little, did a little word study in Esort, okay? And uh, I wanted to know, is there anybody in the New Testament described as being wise? And we find out that uh, Stephen, the first martyr, says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So all the Pharisees are gritting their teeth, and Paul is there, Saul of Tarsus is there, and they hate Stephen because he is just wise as can be. He's just speaking, and they don't know what to do with this guy. Now, was Stephen's wisdom brand new divine revelation? No, if you read Acts chapter 7, about 50 verses of Stephen's speech are recorded. And what is it? It's Stephen reciting the history of Israel from the Old Testament. His wisdom was not fresh, new, printed, you know, direct revelation from God. It was the Bible... The, the, the already revealed Bible just wisely applied. Right? So you go, well, how should we pray for God's will? I would avoid the whole Ouija board thing. Okay? I would avoid the police thing. 
I wouldn't rule out the subjective, but I would always submit the subjective to the objective. But I would pray that God would lead through his word. Through his word. You could pray something like this. Lord, reveal your will by illuminating your word to me. Open my eyes so I can properly read it and understand it. Aid me in knowing which scriptures apply to my situation. Give me skill. Maybe even give me other Christians to help apply the word. And then, not my will, but thy will be done. All right? Let's have the worship team come up as we pray. Lord, I pray 